Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication and tickets are on sale now. The second early bird discount will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. In this episode, we welcome my favorite partner in crime, Robert Joseph, live from the streets of Tbilisi. Robert brings us the very latest from the American Association of Wine Economists Conference, as well as his thoughts on the Georgian wine market. Today, we're talking history, potential differentiation, blind spots. If you were a fan of the Real Business of Wine series, this conversation is right up your alley. Let's get into it. Ah, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to talk to you. I know that we have a ton of stuff to chat about, but but first, 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 you are in Georgia. And, um, and, and the thing that I love about this, this uh, so much comes back to these moments. You and I were supposed to be in Georgia right after the pandemic started. When we were running Real Business Wine, we were supposed to be in Georgia. Precisely. And it had been a year or two before, uh, I think I was here in 18, I think, um, maybe 19, actually, um, certainly not in 20. And I didn't then really get into the heart of Tbilisi as much as I have this time. And I think that a lot has happened in the wine industry here, even in the period since then. This is one of the most extraordinarily dynamic wine places I have seen on God's earth. Oh, my God. I want to hear not, all about it. But first, well, you're there for a couple different reasons, both of which here, I'm so curious we, about. Okay. So the first of this is the um, the wine, the American Association of Wine Economists, who very kindly invited me to come and give a kind of keynote for their, uh, their conference. And they have a conference in a different place every time. And next time is going to be in Stellenbosch, for example. And they were due to come to Georgia some time ago, and it didn't happen. So this was, they were very excited to be here. They had a lot of people drop out which I think is one of the reasons I got my late invitation to give the keynote. Um, and a lot of people were scared of going to, to, to Georgia, looking at it on a map. Um, and so that was on side. And the other side was that I have a project that you and I have talked about over the years um, to make uh, a wine here in Georgia, or in fact to make two or well, three things here in Georgia, and the timing was just perfect to come over here and spend a couple of days blending um, with the brilliant winemaker that I'm working with after finishing the conference. Okay, so let's let's do them in order of uh, of sequence. So first, you were there for the Wine Economist Conference. You gave a spe- uh, keynote. I saw that you were like throwing mathematic formulas out into the social media wild. Um, 
obviously all of us, we've not been there. Kick it down for us. Be our man on the street. What what was significant? Well, I think one of the rules is, you know, don't diss your hosts, which, of course, was effectively what I was doing. Um, I was very cognizant of the fact that I was one of the only people in the room um, not only without an economics degree, but without any kind of degree at all. Um, I'm still on my gap year, as you know. Um, and so uh, I was just, but I've done a lot of reading of wine uh, economist papers, and I'd been at a, um, a the wine business research conference in Dijon a few weeks earlier. And I have to admit that I was um, frustrated by this huge gap between um, all these clever economists and the wine business. Right. And there, there is, I drew, a, I showed them a Venn diagram um, in which basically there was wine around the outside and there were these two circles, uh, one of which was the wine business and the other which was the economist and a very small overlap. Now, to be fair, mm. in Australia, in Adelaide and in Sonoma in the States, there are definitely places where that overlap is, is much bigger. But in certainly in France, in just in most places, there isn't. And if you, the interesting thing as a journalist, when you read the papers, the only thing that, 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 that the academics tend to do is quote other academics. And so, you know, this, this, these papers are littered with references to X, Y, and Z, and et al. said in 2007, mm -hmm. and so and so. And there are very few um, references to what I call the real world um, in terms of, of real, um, real data of what's actually happening. An awful lot of this is theoretical. Um, and I, I have to say at the Dijon conference, there was, I was next to somebody from Gallo um, who after a, one particular presentation, we both went out and got coffee and he said what they've described, which included a lot of research, does not resemble the real world as I know it in terms of sales and behavior. Um, so the first thing I was saying is, look, you guys, please start talking to the wine uh, world, the wine business world, A, because they've got some money, which they might help give you, um, and B, because you'd get stuff more right and you do stuff that's, that's actually more interesting. And the other thing I threw at them, which I probably shouldn't, was that they tend to research stuff that they're interested in. So um, there's lots of research into organics. There's lots of research into wine competitions, which a number of wine economists hate. Uh, they also hate scores. Um, and, you know, nobody has looked at, and it's amazingly to me, um, the sort of economics of, of actually running a vineyard, or running a wine company or winery in 2022, or why um, bourbon barrel wine is so attractive to um, the producers of bourbon barrel wine, which, by the way, is because you can pick up empty and mm -hmm. use bourbon barrels for, for $10 a piece. Uh, and you can charge $15 for the wine you've made in them. Um, but hold on, uh, hold on. Sort of let, me, let me jump in and ask a question. Then if they're not talking to wine businesses, like what are they doing? What's their, what's their oh, purpose? Very, I, I don't, I don't understand why they exist if they're not interacting with or asking the questions that we as wine business people need help with. I can explain that very easily, and I wasn't really aware of this until now. 
um, which is, of course, they live, and I'm saying this with affection, certainly for, for, for a number of them, they're living in a bubble, which is an academic bubble. And the people who count are the publishers of academic journals um, and the academics, the senior academics in their own establishments, universities, colleges, whatever, or indeed others. So if you can write stuff that impresses your peers, um, in terms of the publishers or the other professors, you A, get published and that gets noticed. You potentially get tenure, uh, which means you've got a job for life. And potentially, if there is any funding for more research, you get the funding. Okay. Um, where but, that funding comes from is another question. But hold on, because now what I'm hearing from that, and I'm, I'm certainly not trying to rip on your host, um, but just maybe trying to get down to the bottom of some things that I'm I'm, I'm thinking in, in my brain, um, my very tired post hot summer brain. Um, okay. So these are the people who are doing the research and writing for academia, which means mm -hmm. this is what's being taught to people coming through wine business programs. I'm not sure actually. No, I think these, no, I'm not sure. I think, um, people doing wine business uh, well, I think that may be true of some. Quite a lot of these people have come into this via economics. Um, there were two or three really super bright people who've been in the financial world and so on. I think the key to say to this is that, and these are lovely people. I've really enjoyed spending time with them. Um, what uh, I think their first interest is wine. Mm. Um, and then everything else springs out of that. And then this is a way of, of being in the wine world. Um, in as opposed to being a blogger or uh, a critic right. or any of the or indeed selling um and basically um there's a lot of stuff on um one of my uh one of the the, the pieces of research that that, that that i was interested to see and i'd seen the same piece of research referred to in dijon the wine business research conference was um about the influence of uh, wine critics or public uh, magazines versus uh, peer reviews. Mm -hmm. And they took a number of wines or three wines. And the idea was that we showed the uh, our group of uh, respondents some information about, the, about each of these wines. And there were like three levels of, of uh, information. The fourth level of information was the wine spectator score. And the fifth level of information was the uh, Vivino uh, score as well. And they've given these bits of information one at a time. And the idea was that they were questioned as to whether they would buy the, the product and the willingness to pay. I had a lot of this, this willingness to purchase, and willingness to pay. And then they obviously manipulated the marks to see what would happen if the, uh, the mark from Vivino was higher than the spectator and vice versa and so on. Now, the interesting thing about this was that every time they did it, the wine spectator speed, uh, uh, figure was given first and the Vivino figure was given second. And so it was questionable whether actually what these respondents were um, working with was the fourth and fifth bit of information. They didn't randomize which came first. Well, and actually, there are lots of examples. There was just um, a report that came out this week that showed um, going way off piste that shows that if you ask about same-sex marriages and then you ask about um what's the word civil like civil agreements yeah, where civil you're, partnerships right, or civil whatever, partnerships yeah. yeah de facto partnerships that the um the answers are absolutely dependent upon the order of those two Precisely. questions yeah 
So that was interesting. The other thing is that so much research is still being done uh, either online, um, which I think is, and I've done research online and I know mm-hmm. the, the dangers of that, uh, or with university students, mm-hmm. um, which again, I find questionable. Um, so, but you know, this is, but the, the problem to me is that not that all of this stuff is, is some of it's much better than others. Um, but that actually, because if you've quoted enough previous papers, um, it will be nodded through because it doesn't get seen by most of us. Now, what my, the point I was trying to say to them, and I, was, I wasn't just being nasty to them, I was trying to be nice, was that I'd been talking to wine, um, wine industry people who, in, who, interestingly enough, do have a substantial relationship quite often um, with the technical people, the technical academics. So in other words, when it comes to behavior of wild yeasts or fermentation times or, you know, all that sort of thing, um, there is definitely an overlap between what happens at Davis or at Montpellier or Geisenheim and some big companies. It's when you get to the fact of uh, why do people buy organic wine rather than natural wine or vice versa or whatever, that the relationship seems to not exist. And that's what the, the professionals were saying to me. We'd love to have uh, a relationship with these guys. And then the reason for the the, uh, the numbers I put on the screen, or the sorry, the, the equations I put on the screen, was that, of course, most of the papers are written in language that most people can't understand. So I teased them by putting up some Georgian script. Um, I don't know who's, if you haven't seen Georgian script, Google it now because it doesn't look like anything you've ever seen. This is an impenetrable language in every single way. And so to me, actually seeing a sign in Georgian or seeing uh, an economist equation is pretty much the same to the average mm. human being. And I'm saying that, you know, wearing my one of my hats the Mining is Wine Business International hat, we want bright, inquisitive people to write articles for us that our readers could understand. And our readers are members of the industry, and maybe those members of the industry would then be happy to pay some money um, towards uh, those those uh, those researchers. Well, you know, I, I mean, I reference that it's AAW. I reference their um, research all the time. And if it's not directly through them, it's some of their researchers who, you know, are, are mutual friends, people out of Davis, especially. Um, and I find it so incredibly valuable to the client work that we do. But I know that there are whole sections of it that I just completely gloss over because I'm like, okay, what's the praises on this? Like, give, give me, give me the meat and potatoes of what I need to know about this because I'm not ever going to fully understand the math that sits behind it. Um, but what I would say is, I think just like anything, right? It, it's about moderation in, you know, where are we getting our information? So we can't just rely on one source. We can't just rely on one outlet. We have to be able to get this, this beautiful big picture of what's going on across boundaries, borders, uh, you know, um, excuse me, academics, but all different professionals, marketers, economists, the whole thing. 
I think what I'd like to say, and I just before um, getting into this conversation with you, I was flicking through my Twitter uh, feed, and there was something from a British um, Brexit-supporting, Boris Johnson-supporting person who was uh, furious with a, a British journalist whose politics he didn't agree with. And this was the woman who had exposed many of the things that Boris Johnson had done. And he said, you're not a journalist, you're an activist. And I think my point here is that what journalism is about, should be about, is the, the, the key questions, who, what, when, where, and very specifically, why. And the why, to me, was one of the things that I was struggling with with some of the papers I was listening to. Uh, Carl Storchman, the, the president of the, of the association based in New York, a lovely German guy who is a, apparently a terrific, uh, I met one of his former students, and he's a terrific lecturer. He is on Twitter daily putting up data, and there's some fabulous, absolutely fabulous data he puts up, and almost all of it is worth looking at, but they're always charts. And to me, every one of those charts is, raises the question in my head, which is like the small child saying, yeah, but why? Why is there more acreage of this than that? Why did prices go up or go down or this happen? And that's what <clears throat> I, think, I think we need more of. And the wine industry, I think, doesn't do as much as it could or should. So to kind of shift from the content within the conference to the happenings around the conference, because we all know that one of the amazing things, right, about wine conferences, even if it's super dirty, um, is that we, people who work in and consume wine, get to go and discover new things. You know, Georgia, but for the, the people who were here for this conference, what did they think? Did they, people who'd never been before, like, what was their experience with Georgia and the Georgian wine scene? Well, can I say, when, I, when you say you were kind enough to say, I know Georgia, yes, because I've come here. I came here in 1988, which was before some of the people there were born. And I came I back was in 1998. You know, I'll just yeah, say well, that. anyway, but some of them were. And some, so I've been coming here off and on for a number of years, and I've seen a lot. But if you said, Robert, you know Georgia, I don't. I've been learning so much. And to give you an idea, when I first came here, there were like a, a handful of, well, when I first came here, it was all under the Soviet system. Then there were maybe 10 or 12 wineries and there were 20 or so. There are, nobody knows how many wineries or wine labels there are today, but it's reckoned that there's somewhere around 2,000, 2,100, and probably a thousand of them have appeared in the last five years. Now, a lot of them are tiny. They're really, the volume of production is, 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 is minuscule, but they exist. And uh, I've got photographs of wine shops, and I'll come back to the wine shops in a minute, with walls of wines, of labels that you just, you know, you just really no idea what. The second thing that's fascinating about Georgia and is very confusing um, is the, uh, basically, it, it's a bipolar wine industry because on the one hand, you've got the natural wine um, aspect of it. And uh, natural wine people have adopted Georgia, and Georgia has ridden on the back of the natural wine um, uh, tiger or train or whatever you want to call it <clears throat> very effectively. Um, so these two, if you go into, if you look at uh, wine lists all over the world today, there is a page which will have Georgian wine amongst or alongside the natural wines mm -hmm. on a special page. But alongside all these companies, there are some wonderful big wineries that, that could come straight out of Napa. 
I mean, just beautifully architecturally designed with tourism uh, attractions galore. And they're making wines that actually are very polished and in some volume and very often involving um, European varieties that would um, absolutely be an affront to a lot of those natural wine fans. And these two co coexist side by side in this, in this, in this world. Um, and on the one hand, the, 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 and the natural wine people are actually ignoring how many of the wines that they are actually uh, applauding actually have been filtered and break some of the rule and involve sulfur and so on, involve some of the rules that they would uh, – not want to see, um, but by the same token, um, the uh, if you call them the the, the, the conventional, the international, or the, the the commercial bigger wineries, are concerned about being put into a ghetto um, with the natural wines. You know, their their dream is to see Georgia on a page uh, alongside Italy, France. Germany, Portugal, Spain. So there's this interesting um, gap between these two. Um, the other thing that's, that's, that's worth saying is that this I didn't appreciate. I knew how good a place, uh, when I first came here, um, Tbilisi, I went to Kishnau in Moldova, which I also work, work in, and Moscow and uh, Tbilisi on the same trip in 88. And Tbilisi was a rundown uh, place like everywhere was in the old Soviet bloc, but it was beautiful. They looked like New Orleans in many ways, with lots of balconies everywhere and lovely old houses and so on. It just looked like somewhere that was just ready for tourism, a bit like Havana, in, uh, obviously in uh, Cuba. When I came back in 98, 10 years later, after the wall had come down, it was actually in a worse state than in 88 because they'd had a war with Russia. Um, and the hotel that I stayed in was full of refugees. Uh, it was a five-day war, but a horrible, bloody uh, event. Um, and so, you know, that was 98, just, just two years before the millennium. And everything that's happened here has happened really in that 20 years. Some people would say probably 15 or 17 years. So what's fascinating is how this city has actually exploded into a tourist place. And it now has as much to offer as any small capital, anyone. I think I compare it maybe to some of the cool places that people are going to. People go to Tallinn or Riga or um, just sort of, Places, cities that may be off the beaten track, but when you get there, they're full of restaurants and clubs and shops and so on. And for a wine person, um, the, the interesting thing is that nobody knows how many wine shops there are in uh, Tbilisi because every single street seems to have one or two, and they seem to open up sort of almost like flowers daily. But every one of them has a table, has tables and chairs. Right. Um, they may or may not offer any food, but they're all places to hang out. Um, and so that you know that has changed the dynamic. And there's a lot of natural wine, but not only natural wine. Um, and so this is kind of like wine central for anyone, for, for tourists of any kind. They come here because it's a, it's a great place to go hiking. You've got all the old monasteries and everything else. But you cannot move in the city without an invitation to go into, into a cellar or into a ground floor place and sit down and drink wine. And what about demographics of their drinkers? Like, how do you see yeah. that play out across the natural wines versus the more traditional wines? I, I, adoption? I'm not, I, you know, basically, 
it's it's like asking the taxi driver, except I don't even know as much as you know, it's like journalists who ask the taxi driver for the information on their way to the airport before writing the article, and I'm not even as as well informed as the taxi driver. So I I can't answer that. The first thing I will say about Georgia is that from what I have observed. And I don't think there's any data in terms of anyone having done research, which would have been nice if they had. Um, the first thing to say is that in Tbilisi, this is a country, by the way, with three and a half million people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very small country. And Tbilisi has, I think, probably uh, about 10%. of Tbilisi is actually smaller than, um, I don't, in terms of population, smaller than I might have thought. Um, you see a lot of young people, um, as you do in the natural wine scene in um in Brooklyn and New York or in uh, London, there's definitely that. But I think it goes across the the um, age barriers. What is interesting here, though, and this is uh, it parallels what I've seen in, let's say, China, um, is that you've got the young people have got more money. So mm. crucially, they're the ones who've come through, been educated, got the kind of jobs, so they can afford to buy the wines in those shops. Their parents uh, most likely or very often can't. So that's a, a, a huge um, area. Second thing to say about Georgia, and there was some data and some research that was shown by one of the, the people, which I, I did think was interesting, which was that um, – and I don't know how robust this is, but I've tried it out on a few people. Nobody's arguing that much. And back in the day, every Georgian, this is a very easy place to grow anything. You can grow any fruit or whatever. They all grew grapes. They all made wine. And, of course, crucially, they put the wine in these creveries, these amphora, um, underground. Now, that's relevant because when the uh, Russians or the Soviet system came in here in uh, 1921, and they did their best to collectivize everything. Well, they did. They collectivized everything. The companies closed or whatever. Estates were closed. But, of course, all these people kept their beverages and kept going, and they had a few grapes here and there. Um, Fast forward today, apart from, yes, you've got 2,000 wineries, but apparently if you go from the low-involved wine drinkers in Georgia, um, which would include the people least money, presumably, only 30% of what they drink is actually purchased. And 70% of it comes from um, friends, family, someone someone knows someone who's got, who's got wine. When you go up the scale to the, apparently to the involved uh, wine drinkers here, it's still only around 50%. So there's still a huge, huge tradition of taking your Coca-Cola bottle or whatever it is and getting it filled somewhere. Um, and there's also something that, that I was aware of, and this is maybe one of the benefits of having been here in the bad old days, um, was even under the worst times of the Soviet bloc, Georgia, the Georgians had a better life. And the reason they had a better life was partly because they had better weather um, than most of the other places. But that better weather meant that there was a barter economy. So, and very high education. They've always been very, very highly educated. So basically, if I knew how to fix a tap and somebody else uh, has got a chicken and somebody else knows how to uh, sew a dress and somebody else knows where to get buttons and somebody else has got cigarettes, somehow or other, everybody, and the point is that has survived in a way. It hasn't survived to the incense of barter, but it means that in terms of wine as being a commodity that your friends had and gave you with no money changing hands, 
is still part of the, the the tradition here, and in fact, the poor people, and this is a parallel um, with Shabins in um, South Africa. The people with the least money um, will sort of hold house parties, street parties, and so on. Everyone brings some wine, and some people bring some food. And again, no money is is changing hands. And this is quite interesting because if you look at the wine in the shop, some of that is um, entry level wine here is um, 25 uh, lari, and that would be basically, what's that, about uh, $8. Um, wow. so, so basically, when you're in the stores, there's not much that's less. So if you're in Germany or France or Italy, you'll see cheaper wine in the, stock, in the shops. Um, so that's interesting in itself. So you've got this, and again, this is back to economics. I need to keep coming back to it in a way. Um, People talk about the average um, income here of $300 a month, which is a totally pointless statistic as far as I'm mm. concerned. I doubt there's anyone who's on that wage. I'm sure there's a lot of people who are struggling on 50 and quite a lot who are on 1,000. So, uh, and where I'm sitting in the heart of the city, um, you know, I bought, I mean, to give you some idea, I bought um, three coffees and they were Manhattan prices. Wow. Um, so my three, okay, to give you an idea, my three coffees were 18 uh, Lari. So Lari, we're talking about, um, yeah, that's, that's like 250 or whatever in terms of dollars. Um, and as I said, the cheapest bottle of wine is, say, 20. So bottle of wine, three coffees in a very um, Starbucks-y kind of place. Right. So, okay, I, I, I have to ask, um, what? is kind of the, the tenor there now with everything with the war in Ukraine. I mean, is there a discussion of it? Is there a tension? Does anyone talk about it? Well, this it? is quite funny because my daughter, um, to her um, slight discredit, um, uh, my partner said to my daughter, do you know where Georgia is? And she, she didn't. And so she went and looked up on Wikipedia and then went, oh, my God, it says don't go there. And if you're yeah. there, leave. Um, there is none of that. This is, this is, there is not, none of that at all. However, um, the reality is there's an awareness. I mean, I know somebody in Kiev at the moment who's out in a cafe tonight. Um, and, you know, Kiev is, is, is actually functioning as a city. Um, they can hear the guns, they can hear the, the explosions. So here, um, to your to answer your point, on the one hand, there are when you drive to the wine region, Kharkiv one of the wine regions, you drive past an area where there are a lot of uh, houses, and you're told that's where refugees uh, live. And when you say refugees in Georgia, that means refugees from Georgia, because basically the Russians moved into South Ossetia, and there's no real. Uh, border and every day they, they move the, try to move the border and you can suddenly wake up one day and your house is gone. Your house is now the other side of the border and if you were in your house when they moved that, you've woken up, you then have to fly. Um, a, you may get arrested, you may have a bad time, but you'd have to fly to uh, Tbilisi in your own country in what was, and then you've got no money, no anything, so you're now a refugee. So they had 300,000 refugees from their own country in a country with like three and a half million people. So they're very aware of that. There are a lot of signs, and I took a photograph of one, I think I posted it, which basically says, um, you know, if you don't believe that Russia is an aggressor in um, Ukraine, um, go away. We don't want you. Yeah. And this yeah. very smart hotel. So this is a big boutique hotel called the Stamba 
which is where I'm sitting outside now, um, there is a sign on the outside which says um, support Ukraine. That's a huge sign. So it's it's this is a country that knows the problem. However, um, just to give you the other side of the coin, all my wine producing friends here and the other wine producing people I bet, they're all supplying Russia. Um, Russia has been historically either the number one or one of the leading customers for Georgian wine. And if you're in Moscow, the best restaurants historically were Georgian restaurants. And um, there's a lot of Georgian wine flowing to Russia. So uh, pragmatically, however um, angry uh, Georgians may feel about uh, about Putin and Russia at the moment, they are pretty happy to uh, go on supplying wine. Right, right. Interesting. Okay, so um, are you allowed to talk about the other reason that you're there? Yes, because I'm so excited. I mean, basically, um, I spent two days blending uh, two things. One of, well, I'm not, I can't talk about very much on them except that uh, I will freely say that I'm interested in the side of Georgian wine that is not going to be in the natural wine um, bars in uh, Brooklyn. Um, on the other hand, it will, I think it will be delicious and have flavors that are unique to Georgia and will be made from Georgian grapes. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting, but I'm trying to, what I want to do is to make um, some volume of, of, of Georgian wine. Because I read these people saying, oh, why can't I buy Georgian wine in my local supermarket? Well, the point is, a lot of it is made in very small volumes. Uh, a lot of it is made in styles that um, the natural wine people and, the, if you like, people who've adopted the flavor. So if you don't know about Georgian wine, um, the stuff that you're going to see in Brooklyn I'm sorry about picking Brooklyn now, but it is actually appropriate, um, is made in what they call creveries, which are the amphoras. And actually what that means is that um, you have a big, they vary in size, but a big terracotta pot, usually buried in the ground, not necessarily. And you put the, um, in terms of red or white, you put everything in there to ferment in there. And in red, that's not that different to what you would do in a vat um, in a French winery or a California winery, except it's a terracotta pot. Um, but the difference is they do it with white wine as well. So the white wine skins and stems and so on that you would uh, normally throw away um, here goes into um, the pot. And what that means is that your white wine isn't white. Mind you, no wine is white, really. But actually, it comes out yellow or amber or orange as whatever color you say. And it will depend on how long all of those um, skins and stems and so on remained in contact with the wine. Uh, well, how deep that color is and how it was made, whether there's any fruit at all in the wine or whether it tastes quite tannic and um, quite, quite tough. And a lot of the Georgian wine fans amongst the natural wine lobby like that um, tannic non-fruit uh, evident uh, style. And I have to say that most Georgian grapes have much less fruit, um, natural if you like, fruitiness than the, the Chardonnays and Rieslings and Sauvignons that, that we're used to. Um, and that, that uh, the point about this is that those wines that 
par that you will see in natural wine bars and around place represent less than 5%, probably about 4% of what is produced in, in Georgia. And in fact, um, when you take out the reds, it's even less than that. Mm. So it's a, it's a tiny proportion. And the, the rest of Georgian wine, actually, um, some of it is pretty ordinary. Um, because some of the grapes are pretty ordinary. And that's also interesting because the, the Georgians will tell you they have uh, 500 and some different grape varieties that are not grown anywhere else on earth, which is true, but it's not entirely true because essentially um, most of them barely exist. There are a few rows of them. So they use less than 10. Um, and that one of the exciting things now is they're beginning to use um, more and to plant more and, and uh, develop that, that side of things. So I've been doing some work both not just for my own wine, but I'm also doing some work with the wine association here with, with how Georgia moves forward without losing the support of the, the natural wine people who have been incredibly valuable to Georgia in terms of bringing it to the attention of, the, of, a, of a wider right. world. Right. So how do you grow it. without selling out? You know, so, like- I, yeah, so to me, I think there's the, what is going to have to happen, but I don't see why this shouldn't happen, is that Georgia is allowed to have um, two uh, you know, basically the the clown who plays Hamlet, he can be a clown, he can stand up in, in one place and go and play Hamlet on Broadway in the same um, in the same week to two different audiences. And I don't see why Georgia can't do that. Well, hold on. So I, my question about this, looking at it from like a communication marketing standpoint is, um, one, what is Georgia known for? If they're known in Brooklyn for the natural wines, I'm, I'm just thinking about how do you market this? How do you communicate this? How do you find people? So if you're genuinely thinking about rolling out, you know, a Georgian wine, a product, how do you onboard, you know, middle America? Do you? Well, I think I think the first thing I don't onboard middle America. So okay. with my French with my French wines, about which you you know. Um, one of the um, interesting things about my French wines, which I would love the wine economists to, the sort of subject I'd love them to study, um, I have, if you take the Harris Teeter chain in North Carolina, which is that's where I spent some time just before lockdown, um, it's interesting because they have my Pinot Noir, they have my Cabernet, I think they have my GSM, they have my Rosé, they have my Sparkling, oh, and a Chardonnay. I think I have quite a few of my wines. Um, which wines are easiest to sell in those stores? Well, actually, it's the rosé and the sparkling. And why is that? Because the other wines are in the French aisle. Mm-hmm. And a large part of middle America walks straight past the, the French aisle. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say, and this is I'm going to stray into your territory, um, very relevant. When we look at um, online purchasing and wine websites, it's actually even worse for Georgia uh, and indeed France, or my part of France, than the shop. Because at least some of the people might accidentally walk past my French wine or the Georgian wine in a supermarket. When we get into websites, there's a homepage where people have generally paid um, to be present. And then there is a menu. And you can say, oh, I want to go and look at Portuguese wine or I want to go and look at Georgian wine or whatever it is. And you find your way there. But unless you've got some sort of relationship like a subscription membership or club or whatever it is, you're going to find your own way 
through that uh, through that maze, um, and you may not find it. You, you basically, if you if you don't find your own way to the Georgian page, you're never going to get there. So this moves into back to you and your your um, expertise as a digital marketer. It's actually aiming the product at the people who are most likely to. Uh, be interested in it. So what I'd be saying, just to just finish this quickly, is that I would, and I'm talking to some of the Georgians here, I would love them to be taking stands at travel shows uh, in the States and, you know, adventure travel shows and anywhere where, anywhere where people are going, uh, who've got the, the character uh, to want to go and explore somewhere new. Um, and they're going to find out about going on holiday, whether it's to Turkey or Iceland. Those people who may not be interested in wine necessarily, but they certainly have an adventurous spirit, would be high on my list to present uh, Georgian wine to. And they're not and not necessarily the natural Georgian wines, but basically Georgian wines made from unfamiliar grapes, but that they might find interesting. Okay, so um, I, this has me thinking. I'm going to just reference a, a weird Kiwiism. Um, many years ago, New Zealand got this wild hair and they were like, oh, nobody wants to eat Bambi. We're going to change the language of farmed food venison to Surveyna. Do you know any about, do you know about this? No, this sounds wonderfully yeah. New Zealand. So it's, very I know. It's, it's fabulously New Zealand. Yeah. So um, that that's what they did. They trademarked it. Uh, and if you wanted to go into a restaurant, you didn't order venison, you ordered Surveyna. Anyway. Nobody nowadays actually really thinks about that. This was 20 years ago. But the point is the deer are not going to feel diminished by the fact that someone out there has called it a different name. Is this the kind of thing where um, there's a, a detriment to actually using Georgian wine as the selling point? And, and we have this like tacit discomfort around, well, what do we call it? Do we need to come up with some kind of different descriptor name or identifier that just, you know, that just puts it in a completely different category. People aren't thinking about Georgia and Eastern Europe and, you know, Moldova, Ukraine, Russia, the whole thing. They're just thinking, ooh, every wine, amphora wine. Well, well, interestingly, various things are happening. There is a wine out there called Lost Eden, in a very funky bottle, which, um, to declare an interest, the design of the bottle, and I believe the name, uh, was devised by my um, business partner and friend, Kevin Shaw, in, in California. And it is a wine that is absolutely tailored. It, it says, Lost Eden Red Blend, and the word mm-hmm. Georgia isn't on, isn't on the front. And this will either fly high or it won't, and that will depend as much, I think, on distribution as anything else. It's priced about $18. And I think it would sell in terms of the flavor and the uh, the style and the packaging. I think it should sell well if it's put in the right place. Whether that's going to happen is, is another question. Um, I the, the other side of the coin, though, is that if you look at the names of the grapes here, Mutsvani, M-T-S-V-A-N-E, Rakatsa, these are, I struggle to sell my Viognier 
in the US because people can't pronounce it. And that's a lot easier than, than some of these um, grapes. So I think there's going to be a big question of some people making red blends, and I don't mean red blends, but sort of red and white wines that will be proprietary names and you won't need to know what grapes they're made from. They'll just have a nice name and so on, which is, to be honest, the road that I'm interested in going down, which is not what the, the wine freaks and the, 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 the naturalists will want, and they quite rightly um, and you know, justifiably will want to taste three or four different Riccazzatellis, mm-hmm. and they want to taste the difference between Riccazzatelli and the Mazzani or the blend. Whatever. The other thing that's going to be a wonderful ongoing um, debate is the fact that there is a stream of Western wine writers uh, who visit here and plead with the Georgians not to plant international grapes. Because the thing about Georgia mm-hmm. is it has tiny, tiny, unlike Moldova, where there are a lot, the fact that the local grapes are in a minority in Moldova anyway. Here, there are tiny amounts of Cabernet Sauvignon and Malbec and so on. But the interesting thing was I visited the winery this week, Sinandali, which is the, the first, the, the father of, he was a poet, he was a, a, a soldier, but he was also seen as the father of Georgian um, viticulture and winemaking in the uh, 19th century, 200 years ago, whatever. Um, he introduced Malbec and Pinot Noir. Mm. So those grapes have as much right to be here as anything else. And indeed, some of the other grapes that are widely planted here may well be Georgian, but were really... Um, pushed to their way beyond their limits by the Soviets, who at the time were swapping wine with uh, petrol um, litre for litre. So I think there's going to be an ongoing battle there as well. And there's anybody who's interested in in the, the politics, and I don't mean uh, party politics, but the politics, mm-hmm. the human politics of, of wine and the wine industry should watch Georgia and what happened. And the same thing applies to the the Cleveries because, um, as I said earlier, um, and there's a parallel with IPA um, beer, if you like. Um, anybody who knows about craft ale will know that IPA can vary in bitterness, hoppiness, whatever, quite widely. And some are, or, or chilies, you know, there's the, mm-hmm. um, the, the scoby scale, which it is, but some people aren't happy unless their head is blown off. And other people just want um, a curry with a with a bit of chili character, and that's going to happen, I think, with with the quivery um, thing. Because when you start talking to people, um, without getting into the, the technicalities of wine making, some people use their put their skins and stalks in there for uh, a month. Other people do it for six months. Some people take the, don't put the stalks in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're all looking for they're looking for different things. They're looking for different outcomes. But isn't that glorious? And, I mean, isn't that glorious? Yeah, for our it. industry, yeah, it's so great. I love it, except that. Um, back to your point about New Zealand, the New Zealand success story and the Prosecco success story. But, but I mean, bear in mind that it's not hard to find wine um, uh, authorities or whatever you want to call them who hate New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Um, bitch diesel is the Australian expression, as I recall. Cougar juice. Um, and, they, yeah, and they absolutely hate Prosecco and can't any, imagining or drinking it. The thing that they, the reason they hate it, well, one reason they hate it, is because it doesn't behave like wine. 
Um, basically, it's an incredibly consistent product that's got a flavor that consumers like. And um, when you move away from that, when you move into a situation where you've got a wide range of iterations of something, consumers don't necessarily like that. Consumers who have something they like and they have it next time and yeah. it's different, they don't like it, don't necessarily come back the third time. So I think um, that's going to bring us into the questions of branding. And certainly um, I see that, whether it's a, a natural wine brand, um, because if you if you happen to like a particular um, if you like Grafner um, in Slovenia, you're going to mm-hmm. you know what to, you're going to get when you buy a bottle of Grafner. Um, or if you like um, Mondavi, you like you know what you're going to get from Mondavi. And I think we're going to see that happening here, except we've got 2,000. So we're going to come back to, briefly to my economics 101. Um, one big winery owner I was been, I've been talking to said basically he gets 10 or 15 calls a week from people wanting to sell wineries or wine labels or wine brands. So it, it, the, it may well be that whilst the beast is still growing, the other, some of the other bits of the beast are actually um, going the other way. Right. And um, I think lastly, well, not lastly, but we go on, but one of the things I would say about Georgia, which is also interesting, and it's relevant to my $300 a week, uh, um, $300 a month uh, statistic, um, whatever that statistic is, it's probably meaningless. Nobody knows um, how much money there is around and where it's mm-hmm. coming from. There is, Georgia has a huge diaspora. Um, and the diaspora, which is interesting, is similar to Armenia in this respect, but I think even more also. Um, if I were sitting down with a Georgian here and we look across the road and there's what looks like a place that could be turned into a nice restaurant, somebody will know somebody who knows somebody and we mm. can raise the money. And that is, that's where a lot of this wine stuff is going. So we, I went into the middle of the night, um, visited a couple of young, I met a young guy in a wine shop who's managing the wine shop. He said, oh, I'm making some wine with, my, with, a, with a guy. We're both finishing our enology studies at the university. Do you want to come and taste it? Yeah, fair enough. So at like 11 o'clock at night, we turn up at this very smart modern house. And this is his business partner's house, business partner. They're both 24 years old. And um, there are, I think, 25 Fevries. And that's, you know, that's $15,000, $20,000 worth of investment. There's stainless steel tanks, there's barrels. And this all, they've had this for about three years and they've made no wine. They've got a label, but they've made virtually no wine. They've sold no um, and do you think, where's, this, where's the money come from? Well, dad is a university professor, but he's got some kind of business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the 24-year-olds has got a convertible Chevrolet. The, the whole thing could be straight out of Sonoma or Napa. And I'm in the hills, but I've, I've just visited a church and I visited an, an old winery. And then um, here I am. Um, seeing these guys, as I said, the whole scene could have been anywhere in, in the new world, um, except in the new world, they probably would have made some wine and sold some wine by now. Um, and one of these guys, they, they, certainly he knows how to make wine. But oh, That was fascinating. That was kind of like our little masterclass on, on Georgia. I think you and I, well, I know you and I could go on and on and on. Um, I, I do just want to say to everyone who has listened to us for this 49 minutes, you are 
there right now. I think you've stepped out from some of the work that you were doing. Um, so I'm so grateful to you. Uh, if, if you had to kind of give us one thing that you're like, okay, this is what you need to watch out for. Or if you're looking at trying Georgian wine, this is what you need to go hit up. And yes, I know everybody has different tastes. People like different things and there's lots of different money, but what's the thing that you're loving the most right now out of Georgia? I think, well, there's two things. One is in terms of wine. If you're sitting, depends where, anywhere on the world, you can try, you can find somebody somewhere who's going to sell you some Georgian wine. And my only thing I'd say to you is that if you go into an exclusively, if you go into a place that is, it sells itself as a natural wine bar or a natural wine shop, um, you may end up with some Georgian wine that you and your friends may not be used to. Let's put it that way. Um, so I'd be slightly, and it would be, but you may be into those wines, and you may that you may feel really at home with it. But it, it is, it's going to be a um, potentially a, a bumpy ride for, for for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you've got a wine shop that's got a wide range of wines um, and is a serious serious wine store, and they've got one Georgian wine, um, talk to them. Um, in Britain, our Marks and Spencer's chain. Uh, I think it's the only supermarket chain that I know of that's got a Georgian wine. It's got a very approachable. Um, Georgian wine on its shelves, and you can start there and and move on. Read about it, and the same thing applies um, when you're reading. Look at the the background uh, to the person writing about it. If this person um, likes uh, a range of the sort of wines you like, and if they don't like uh, natural wines that taste of cider and so on. They are going to be the people who might well direct you towards a, what I could call a conventional or more conventional um, Georgian wine. And by the same token, if you really want to be adventurous and go off piste, um, there are plenty of, of, of bloggers and websites and so on out there that would um, be uh, helpful as well. And the other thing I would say, and this is depends where you are in the world, um, this now is the time to come here because you will feel like a pioneer. There's nothing dangerous. I mean, you know, maybe something's going to happen to me tonight, but it doesn't feel dangerous at all in any way. But you can actually, I was with um, my Airbnb cost me, I think, uh, 50 for two bed um, place, cost me like 50 little courtyard, it's about $50 a night. Um, but I got here late, I booked late, but other people are staying in some really nice places that are cheap. Eating out isn't expensive. It's a great place to hike. It's a it's come now. Um, it's just like I'd say about Havana or Hanoi. Um, if you hold off for um, another five or ten years, um, you'll be going to the same place that everyone else is already going to, and it'll be like Paris or um, Berlin or whatever. Now is the extraordinary moment where you've got one of the most modern holiday inns and plush holiday inns, and as I said, this hotel I'm sitting outside right now, ultra-luxurious modern places if you want it. And then you've got some lots of really nice down and dirty places as well. And it, that's to be enjoyed now. And you will feel like a pioneer. And I can't recommend that highly enough. Robert, you were wasted with The Economist. Why the travel board does not have you amplifying their message. I just want to understand. So, okay. For anybody who's listening, if you have anything to do with Georgia and travel and tourism, you guys need to call Robert because clearly he's your man. Um, and we all know that he's a good talker. On that note, it is, um, it's time for you to go and have a glass of wine and some dinner.
Thank you. I'm about to go. Just to wrap this up, I'm about to meet a delightful, I met her the other day, a delightful Georgian wine influencer. She calls herself a blogger, but she's on Instagram. And I think she's, whether you call her a blogger or an influencer, um, super bright and super well-informed and um, one of the people who, you know, you could easily What's see her, her counterpart. Um, that's a very good, she, she gets herself out as, let me just dip to, um, she's called Ketty, but I'm going to try and dig out her, um, uh, her Instagram handle. You so send it to me, I'll drop it in the show notes. Do that, and but she deserves, she deserves a follow. And again, I think um, very much the fact that she is one of those people, I should have said this probably earlier, she is one of those people who actually... Um, she is called Wine Ketty, K-E-T-I, underscore about wine in one word. She has about 4,000 followers on um, Instagram, which I think is a lot more than I've got. Um, and, um, yeah, check her out because um, I think she's one of the people who will give you some good advice. Fabulous. Robert, you know, it's so funny. I, I didn't even intro you properly when we started. I When I talk to you, I never think to say, and you can find Robert online at the Wine Thinker and the Wine Thinker and the Wine Thinker on across all channels. Everybody knows you. You're in Georgia. Where are you going next? Where are we going to see you this year? Um, I'm flying from here. At One of the things about Georgia, by the way, if you're not careful, you end up flying at 3.30 in the morning um, out via Istanbul to Germany, where I'm um, involved in the Mundusvini wine competition. Then I go home, and I think my next trip is to France to do some blending of my Le Grand Noir um, wines. Check them out. And then I'm going to Malaysia to talk to, the, to a whole set of um, – sommeliers from across the world about Moldovan wine with one Ukrainian wine we're including in there from a winery called Shabo. Um, so just check that out as well. And um, yeah, and it's exciting. And what I will say, and this is just, I have to say, because it's slightly exciting, was that um, Georgia is full of Georgian wine. And I, there's a wine shop here with my wine, my French wines. And um, when I go to Malaysia, there's a shop there with my wines. And that makes me feel quite happy. That is very gratifying. Go be free. Thank you so much for Thank bringing you. us the lowdown on Georgia. We'll talk soon. And speak soon. Thanks. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. And a great big thank you to my friend and co-conspirator, Robert Joseph, for joining me today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, the second early bird discount on tickets will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Hi 
guys, I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.